Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Nick. I can be found online pretty much anywhere as my buddy Nick. I am joined as always by my buddy Dan, Daniel Foch. Your buddy Dan. How are you and where are you? <laughs> Good, man. I'm in the mountains in Quebec, like just outside of Quebec City. Actually hilarious. Yesterday, I was wearing my Eaton's hat. This shop, well, we, Steph and I were looking for some playing cards, some Quebec City playing cards. And we went into this gift shop and this guy traded me. He's like, is that a Eaton's hat? He's like, my dad worked for that shit company. Like, They can't believe they went bankrupt or something. He's like, I was like, yeah, you want the hat? And he's like, yeah, sure. I'll make you a trade. And he gave me a, a Montreal Canadiens hat, which is really, really funny. Oh, so, what? That's a bad trade. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> but I just thought I did it for the story. Story to the Canadians fans out there. <laughs> yeah, so out here in Quebec, I'm going to be actually driving around looking at some some investment properties later today. A couple of like multiplex under a million bucks for to present on social media. So that'll be, be kind of cool. Stay tuned for that stuff. But love that. Yeah, the one the one thing that I've noticed out here is, is just the vastness of the urban landscape, right? Like it's so suburban by comparison to or so sprawling by comparison to to the GTA, right? And I think that actually segues pretty nicely to what we're gonna be chatting about today, Nick. Here we are on our segues again. Yeah. So so like this episode kind of this wasn't the episode we had planned, but I was looking up this stat and and I got carried away and and kind of wrote the episode about it. And the working title this probably won't be the actual title of the episode, but is the Queen owns Canada, but you can have a little bit of it too. So I think I just gave the answer away there. But you know, growing up, I, I was obsessed with this stuff. I, I used to read the Forbes billionaires list. I I always like lists of this kind of stuff and. I wanted to see who owned the most land in Canada, right? Is it is it Brookfield? Was it CN Rail? Was it Hudson's Bay? Was it any of these major companies that were that we're aware of? And the answer is no. The largest single land owner in Canada, and by extension of the world's largest, is the Canadian government. So the majority of all lands in Canada are held by governments as public land and are known as crown land. So about 89% of Canada's land area is crown land and only about 11% is privately owned. So Canada is the second largest country in the world by land mass. And it's also one of the most highly urbanized country in the world with 82% of Canadians living in large or medium-sized cities. Yeah, I think that's kind of interesting. We're seeing, and I talk about this a lot, right? The the trend in Canada to get into a, a higher rental economy and a rental tenure, and urbanization has has definitely increased that, right? We're we're turning into what would be considered a late stage capitalistic economy. We see it in a lot of places in Europe, and a lot of this happens with urbanization density. You know, the increase of condominiums, the increase of condominiums as a financialization of housing, right? It becomes this easy way for more investors to buy simple management units and rent them out to young people who are living in urban areas. We're also seeing this trend in in rural Canada where more and more urbanites and COVID would be a huge example of the exacerbation of this trend, but more and more urbanites are purchasing land or acreages to own summer homes, cottages, cabins, hobby farms, etc. And and this is almost more of an indication of how this Real estate ownership has exacerbated disparity in this, you know, K-shaped recovery that we're seeing in Canada or in most economies in the world right now. 
Anyway, I, I thought it was interesting to with the the concept of this ep- episode to discuss sort of who the la- largest landowners in the world are, who the largest landowners in Canada are. So maybe I'll start with the top five in in the world here. Number one, the Roman Catholic Church, seventy million hectares, and that's outside outside of the Queen, obviously, who kind of like in quotation marks owns Canada per se. <laughs> Gina Reinhart is twelve million hectares in in Australia now. Look at the gap there, just so you're aware, between 70 million to, to 12 million in number two. Number three, the Chinese dairy farmer Muda Jiang City Mega Farm, which is owned by Russian and Chinese owners, 9 million hectares. Number four, Australia Agricultural Company, 7 million hectares. And number five, Jumbuck Pastoral Company, 5.7 million hectares. So obviously a, a big, big spectrum there. And going to Canada, the largest landowners in Canada, I think, outside of the crown, obviously, are the Inuit people. They own 35.3 million hectares in the Canadian north, this area now called Nunavut. And the area is owned by the 65,000 Inuit, not any government. That's sort of like actually a, a land treaty. Makes it the third largest amount of privately held land in the world behind Queen Elizabeth II and the Catholic Church. Right, Fourth largest is that Australia's Gina Reinhardt. So again, depending on the list and, and what kind of ownership you're actually using. And a lot of people like to talk about this because it kind of alludes to the, the foundations of Canadian land, right? Transition away from and then into this sort of like feudalist system that was brought over here with New France. The last piece I'll add before we get over to kind of actually just talking a little bit more about land is, you know, you could also use the dollar value because I, you know, we know urban real estate is worth a lot more than rural real estate just based on supply and demand. And so, you know, if you're to try and pick the dollar value, who has the most valuable portfolio in Canadian real estate? I think by some estimates, probably Cadillac Fairview would be $28 billion valuation on their portfolio. That's wholly owned by the Ontario's teacher's pension plan, by the way. So if you're a teacher, you have a really solid real estate investment portfolio. Cadillac Fairview owns a lot of office towers in Canadian cities and and in other markets around the world. Yeah, my dad's a retired teacher. So him and the queen are both doing pretty well, I, I'd assume, eh? There you go. <laughs> I think we're going to talk a little bit about just some other some other trivia here on on what makes Canada such a compelling land holding for the queen. Yeah, it, you know, it's interesting. So the Canadian law in most provinces evolved from from British law, obviously. So instead of directly owning land, Canadians really have what they call land tenure. That means we can only really own an interest in an estate. So private landowners aren't really owners, but mere tenants of the crown. So 6.6 billion acres of land worldwide, including Great Britain, Northern Ireland, Canada, Australia, and a few other spots here and there are all owned by Queen Elizabeth II, the first child of the Duke and Duchess of York, the grandmother of the Duke of Sussex. The 96-year-old monarch owns way more real estate than anyone else in the world by far. I did want to use this to touch on something else now that we're talking about our friends over there across the pond. This just came out this morning or yesterday. This is Thursday, August 4th. The Bank of England, that plays the same role as our BOC, the Bank of Canada, has just raised rates by 0.5 from 125 to 1.75 in their biggest hike in 27 years. Now, that's an effort to battle their 40-year high inflation reported at 9.4%. So, obviously, got a little deja vu seeing this. Like, you know, this, this looks a lot like all the Canadian headlines. It's not just Canada. It's not just the UK. The EU just, the EU central bank just raised their first interest rate in the, in, for the first time in 11 years. New Zealand has, Australia has. 
And this is all to fight inflation. So the reason I wanted to discuss this is two things. One, I wanted everyone to know, everyone listening to know that Canadians aren't alone in facing the challenges that are happening right now. These are happening all over the world. Also that housing is not the core of the problem here like 2008. Now, I know we did discuss a little bit of this in some other episodes, so I'd urge you to go back and listen to those. But what does this mean for investors? So the central banks have made it clear they'll continue to raise interest rates to battle inflation. I would urge all investors to keep an eye on those inflation numbers because those will start to dictate rates. Now, these are confusing times with rates rising, rents rising, prices falling, and can be pretty overwhelming for consumers. But this is when investors can shine because your creativity, your knowledge, and work ethic are actually worth more than they have been in the last couple of years. They have more merit because over the last few years, it was just a bit of a frenzy. So I saw this funny meme on Instagram this morning. I thought I'd throw it in. So there's actually three types of markets, Dan. I don't know if you're aware of this one. There's the, the bull market, which you know we've all known and loved and lived through for the past couple of decades. There's the bear market, which you yourself love and have been predicting. But apparently there's a kangaroo market. And that is a market that is essentially jumping all over the place and can't figure it out. So that's my piece right there. Why don't you take it? Why don't we start talking about what it's actually like to buy vacant land, to own vacant land, what you can do with that land. And let's let's start to explore that because you know we only have 11% to work with here. Or do we have more? Can we actually work with the Can we JV with the queen on some of this crown land is what I'm getting at. Right. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting, right? Like you can actually, you can transact on, on publicly owned lands sort of the same way you would with traditional real estate. And it doesn't even have to be on the market. So as an example, if a piece of property is owned by the government, there is a process that you can go through to submit an offer to either lease or purchase that, that property. And they do have to review it. In a municipality, they have to present it to council as an example. It's not to say that it would be... Then they also do have to go to a, some sort of like tenuring process to make sure that like anybody else around the property isn't interested in it, potentially somebody who would be a more logical owner for that piece of land as an example. I've done a couple of deals with this actually, or deals like this with churches as an example, where they'll put a carve off a piece of excess land and offer it to a couple of people around the property before going private side and even sell it at a at a lesser value than they probably could have got to per, like a neighbor as an example. So a lot of these public entities do sort of have a duty of care to protect surrounding landowners and you know the integrity of that that sort of tenure system that we're talking about in regards to making land a compelling investment, right? Which I think is, you know, sort of the core idea of what we're trying to talk about on this podcast is can we or do we want to explore all of these different ways to to invest in in, in Canadian real estate? It's interesting, like you're seeing Manulife as an example, investing in massive amounts of farmland in in Canada, farmland and timberland, even in the U.S. Not not to be confused with Timberland or Timberland, the, the boot company, <laughs> but a lot of investing in real estate for for re, the resource perspective. Obviously, these are much longer plays and much more sophisticated plays, but you know, the average Canadian could potentially invest in in farmland, right? And so, you know, if we, if we quote this Farm Credit Canada report, which comes out on an annual basis, like 2021 farmland rental rates, this is Farm Credit Canada is probably one of the biggest lenders in the the farmland space or the agricultural space, I would say. I, I think maybe the single biggest. 
know, they released this sort of rent to price ratio analysis. So this would be similar to a cap rate, cash rental rate per acre divided by the value of the farmland per acre. It is basically a cap rate. And they have this ratio by province. So as an example, in Alberta, the rent to price ratio is 2.2%. In Saskatchewan, it's 3%. So pretty good. Again, these are pretty low cap rates, right? Like, So the investment needs to be more compelling on a, on a on something else. And we'll talk about that a little bit as well. But nationally, the rent to price ratio on average is 2.5%. The highest provincial rent to price ratio is actually in PEI. And the reason for that is very specialized type of crop farming, obviously. You know, we know PEI for their potatoes. And yeah, so so for the layperson, you could be buying large pieces of land. And how do you make these pieces of land cash flow, right? So you can you can rent them out at anywhere between 2.2 or sorry, I guess in Ontario, it's 1.45%. So you could be renting them out at a low yield like that, or there's other ways that you could do it. And the other compelling piece, again, we talk about this a lot in in real estate is whether or not there is a, a thesis to be gained from the capital appreciation, right? So According to Statistics Canada, the average price of farmland per acre in 1988 was $464. And by present day, that value had exceeded $4,000. So, you know, if you were to calculate that on an annualized compound annual growth rate from $464 to $4,000 over 30 years, it actually exceeds the growth rate that you've mentioned from that 1982 figure that we, uh, or sorry, 19, was it 94? I think you mentioned in the last episode, which is 6.11%. So the compound annual growth rate for land is actually 7.44%. The challenge with land is if you you could go to a Farm Credit Canada as an example to get debt on it, they're not extremely likely to lend you money if you're not a farmer or somebody experienced in agriculture. And they're definitely not going to lend you 80% loan to value like a big six bank would on a residential house, right? So this is where it becomes a little bit more nuanced. The final question is, and this is kind of talking about an investment thesis that I've had and a couple of other people have had. And we hear a lot of people talking about is, what if I just bought a piece of land and I put cabins on it and I Airbnb'd them all out? So there's an example of this in the Canadian market. Cabinscape would be a good example. So if you just Google Cabinscape, they basically have cut up very rural parcels of land into one acre pieces with tiny homes, not cabins. And there's an important distinction, which we'll get to. But and they basically lease these out on as vacation rentals on Airbnb, et cetera. Is that possible for the average person to do? Yeah. Is it a good way to cash flow land? Probably. Yeah, to be honest with you. So what makes it, you know, what's the catch? The catch is that you're never going to get to the same leverage point, as I mentioned before, on buying vacant land. So you might actually be better off maybe buying something, a piece of land like the one that I have up in, in the French River that I've mentioned a couple of times there, Nick. You know, that has an, a house on it. You can get credit on it. You can buy it with a higher loan to value residential mortgage. And it has this almost as like a, a bonus factor, a cherry on top of, of making the investment compelling, right? Yeah, I love that. And, and I'm so happy you, you took it there because one, this is something that I think there's an inherent desire to, to own land for, for people, right? Especially in Canada, we see so much of it, right? We're such a huge country. Everyone wants a little piece of it. Well, too bad. The queen has all of it. Yeah. I think the other piece <laughs> there is that show Yellowstone has got everybody wanting to be a modern day John Dutton, right? Oh, like, come on now. Come on. <laughs> but it's actually funny, right? Like everybody talks about that and and now it's 
buying i don't know buying land is actually there's i think when you talk about the the airbnb style the cabin style etc like it's there's a sex appeal to having that that kind of thing and as we saw cottage country get more and more inflated over the past little bit it does make it feel like a compelling way to get that kind of lifestyle return that a lot of people have been seeking out of airbnb investment right Totally. And and I mean, that was one of the reasons we decided to take this this episode in, in this direction, right? I mean, I've had in the last couple months, I've had minimum five people seriously reach out to me, one who's a mutual client of ours, that they're actively looking for, for plots of land somewhere in Northern Ontario to do exactly what we're talking about, right? And I have the same conversations with with all of these clients, which which usually goes something along the lines of, okay, one, do you know what you're getting into? Two, is it vacant land or is it raw land? Meaning, essentially, are there any utilities to that land, right? Any sewer, any any electricity, any power? And then, you know, there's there's also a build cost that goes into that, right? So people are thinking, I'll buy a piece of land without a house on it. That's got to be cheaper than buying a house. Well, yes, because you're not paying for the structure, but as Dan mentioned, the financing can actually be a lot trickier. You need minimum 30 to 50% down depending on where the land is, is there any services to it, etc. So, love the love the vigor that people have going into an idea and a business model like this, right? I mean, I personally have not stayed in one of the tiny homes yet. I know people across the country that have that absolutely love them. They're super cool right now. They're everywhere. Is it a great way to put it this way? You buy you buy an acre of land, you put a couple of these tiny homes on it that could be zoned for either a personal cottage that you build years down the road. It could be zoned for commercial. It could be zoned for a spa. Who knows, right? Dan and I are yeah. trying to explain just like you look at a, a duplex, for instance, right? Probably the most common investment that we that our listeners have. I own several. Dan does as well. If you're looking at a duplex that you ideally want to turn into a fourplex in a number of years, how do you apply that same mentality to buying raw land? Well, the exact same thing. Right. You figure out a way to make a cash flow, right? And, and that could be a number of things. That could be literally, I've seen people rent land out to just go and put Tents on it, right? Go drive your pickup truck and, and put a tent yeah, on glamping. it. Glamping, right? But I'm not even talking glamping like stuff set up. Like people literally just go and, and sit down and, and bring their own stuff. Yeah, there's a website for that, right? Hip Camp, I think, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah. There's another one that I've flirted with for a little while. My I have a friend who owns property outside of Guelph. We've looked at potentially eventually putting some self-storage on it. Doesn't make sense to do it now. So how do we make that land work for him? Well, currently 80% of it is rented out to a farmer. They do quite well with that. There's a few acres that are close to the highway that I think would be perfect for a driving range. So there's all these little creative ways to to purchase land and to make that land cash flow until you can eventually do something much bigger and badder with it. Yeah. So, you know, in, in regards to and this comes back to that that 25 point deal checklist that we just did. When you're thinking about buying something, especially that its future is a lot broader, like land is is basically, you know, if, if it was land in Texas, you could do anything with it, right? So there's a huge range of potential outcomes. But the range of potential outcomes for land in Ontario, especially, but in, in most of Canada is, is what the zoning stipulates mm-hmm. that it is, right? And so the zoning will tell you what you could do with that property in the fullness of time. So as an example, like a driving, you can't just go and start a driving range, right? You might be able to but if you if you know like you kind of just just do it for shits but 
at the end of the day, eventually, if it starts becoming a viable business, you are likely to catch the attention of the municipality and they're going to say, hey, we didn't stipulate that you could do what you're doing on that piece of land, yeah. right? Stop shanking your golf balls over this way. That's <laughs> Right. And and so this is starting to happen with a lot of these sort of fringe kind of like one-off ideas. You're starting to see municipalities try more and more to regulate short-term rental as an example. You're seeing that happen all over Canada especially with this rural stuff, right? And in a lot of cases, it's really just because they want their piece of the pie, right? They want to, they want to make you go get a commercial license to become a, a vendor of that type. And then they want to charge tax on that. They want to charge commercial tax. And that, like, I mean, the reality is if you're conducting business in a municipality, that's kind of just part of the game, right? So there was two other pieces that, well, that, that was piece number one that, that I wanted to mention in regards to what you were saying there. Piece number two is talking about the financing, right? I'd like to use this maybe as an opportunity to introduce the concept of a vendor take back, which is a, a very strategic approach to financing properties that we'll use often. And, and I mean, it's a really, it's a way to make deals pretty sexy regardless of what they are. But you know, especially with land. So a vendor take back mortgage happens when the seller of a property extends a loan to the buyer of the property for some portion of the sale price. So essentially the seller becomes the bank in this situation. With land, it we see it happen more and more because Nick, where you're saying thirty to fifty percent down might be a requirement for for some land. In a lot of cases, the land that is utterly useless the bank doesn't want to lend any money on it, right? Because they have no security and it's highly illiquid, right? You'll, if you go look at land, if you go on realtor.ca and just look for pieces of land, you'll notice they've been sitting on the market for a long period of time. So as an example, if you all of a sudden decide that you don't want to pay the mortgage on your land anymore, or the municipality makes you take your tiny home off of it that you're renting as an example, then the lender has to take back the property they now have to sit on that property for a much longer period of time than they would with a more liquid product like a residential home, right? So this makes lenders more reluctant to lend on vacant land especially. And so one of the the approaches that we'll often use when we're trying to purchase land is we ask for a vendor take back mortgage, right? And it's an interesting negotiating tool from a couple of different perspectives. So number one is if you're a seller and you take a vendor take back mortgage, it actually allows you to extend your tax exposure by taking that tax in as income and, and spreading that out over a five-year period. So there's an interesting tax planning perspective. And I'll often, if we're going to approach a seller, I'll often use that as a negotiating tool saying, look, yeah, you could take our deal and we could buy it cash at this much. But if you take a vendor take back deal, you're actually going to net a lot more, even though you have to take the money over five years, you know, you're not paying as much tax. And that's a fully legal tax strategy. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong. That that's a, it's a massive hedge against against huge capital gains payout if if you have to buy that property outright for that owner. Yeah, I mean, maybe not massive so much. Like, I mean, if you're, you don't see it in, in huge deals, right? Because if a deal's worth over like $5 million, as an example, I think actually it would basically be if a deal's worth over $2 million, there's really no tax advantage because even if you spread that amount out over five, over a five-year capital gains deferral, you're still qualifying it at the highest tax bracket as an example. But if it's a 100000 or 150000 or $200,000 piece of land, then yeah, I mean, it is actually going to to spread out that that capital gain over a five-year period of time. And, and that capital gains deferral is actually considered a pretty big advantage to a lot of sellers. The other thing I wanted to point out there is is usually vendor tapebacks work best when there is little to no mortgage existing on that piece of property and or that house. Now, obviously, in today's episode, we're talking about land. 
in most cases, now Dan, you've done a lot more land deals than than I have, than than probably most people have. I would assume that you know if I'm going to ex farmer somewhere and I want to buy you know a couple acres of his land or or whatever the case may be, that land is probably going to be owned outright or almost owned outright versus me going to try to do a vendor take back with another investor who owns a duplex or a triplex or a small commercial or whatever it may be. Am I am I right to think that? Yeah, and and I think like in you have a higher degree of likelihood that a piece of vacant land is not going to be carrying credit, right? And so there's a higher higher likelihood that the that the seller is able to offer you a vendor take back. But the other thing is, if a seller owns a, a duplex, as an example, and you're going to buy it off of them with a vendor take back, they might as well just hold that property for the same yield that you're probably going to be giving them on a mortgage payment, right? So there's really no necessary advantage beyond the capital gains deferral, like. Most people, they own residential property because they want that liquidity. They want the ability to sell it faster than a piece of land, as an example. I guess the other advantage, again, we want to talk a little bit more about like, you know, if you're investing in, in land, if you're approaching it with a, a vendor take back, it's an easy negotiating tactic in such that you can say to the seller, like, if they're not willing to take a vendor take back, then it's like, oh, well, are you certain that you believe that the property is worth what you're asking for it then? Right. Because if they did, then they, would ought to be willing to to lend that money against the value of the home, right? So it becomes a little bit of a negotiating tactic in that respect. The other advantages I would say is like, you know, they t- very typically don't get registered on your bureau from a credit perspective with a, a vendor take back mortgage. Again, not that people should be being abusive with their debt servicing ratios, but on a land perspective, not a bad way to accumulate land through vendor take back mortgages. The big challenge that you're starting to see with investing in land of this nature is like there's there's a big gap between what's a compelling investment from a land perspective, right? So if you're buying like a rural piece of land that's not really worth much, it's probably not really ever going to be worth much, right? Let's be realistic here. If you're buying 10, 20 acres of bush lot up in the middle of, of nowhere that maybe only has road access four hours or sorry, four months of the year. I, I don't think that that's ever going to house a hundred story condo tower, right? Like I do think that Canada is growing very rapidly, but like it's not like there's a huge exit potential factor in that respect. So I, I think that the other piece is like understand the exit and actually be realistic about it, right? Like are you gonna be selling this potentially to a to a another landowner in the future? Are you gonna be holding it forever? Is this always gonna be a recreational piece of land? And again, like create a cash if you're creating it as an Airbnb investment as an example, if you're doing it for the cabinscape concept, get an understanding for what you are actually getting yourself into from an investment perspective. Becoming an Airbnb investor, again, I've, I've likened this to you know running a business, not actually having a passive investment. If you're leasing it to a tenant farmer, probably going to be a much more passive type. That might actually be one of the very few yeah. extremely passive real estate investments available to the layperson. Most people just don't really know what it takes or have the knowledge base to go and buy a piece of agricultural land in Saskatchewan, as an example, and lease it out to a farmer. I love that. I, I To be honest, I never thought of that. I should get the renting out farmland because that is definitely the most passive. I, I can't see the the farmer calling me at 2 a.m. to complain about his corn or, or whatever that may right. be. Yeah. Sorry, just to add, the only thing I'll mention there is there is obviously a bit of a it's reflected in the returns, the passiveness of it, right? Like we're seeing, and again, I went to that that Farm Credit Canada report, that price to rent ratio, which is basically a cap rate. We're seeing rates of return in the two to five percent range, whereas you know when you're getting into residential investment, duplexes, etc., or even Airbnb investment, yeah, it's a little bit more 
management intensive, but you're getting returns in maybe that five to ten percent range, right? Right. So I mean, half half the work, half the return. Yeah. Well said. What I kind of wanted to touch on here, which I find another path for monetizing land, is look at all these the concerts, the events that are being held in these in these massive open spaces, right? So. You know, I used to go to a whole bunch of these things. I don't, this is going to be Ontario centric because I don't know things elsewhere. I'm not a country fan, but you know, Boots and Hearts is coming up. I know that's a huge one. Veld, which is held in Downsview Park. So these are all essentially businesses renting that land, ideally from the Crown, or they're being given one of five documents. And I'll just quickly run through this list of five documents that you may receive when you are approved to use crown land. So a land use permit, which allows the property to be used for specific activities for up to 10 years, but it does not offer any ownership or interests in the land. So essentially this is you renting the land for whatever that permitted project may be. A license of occupation is similar to land use permit, but can be, but can last up to 20 years and is transferable between parties. So I run this business, whether it's a, let's say a shooting range, a golf course, or, you know, I'm hosting a concert there annually for the next 10 years. I can then sell that license of occupation or transfer that to someone else that can come take it. A lease, a nice simple one, provides an exclusive use of the land as long as the lease is active with the lease improvements and developments can be made on the land and the lease can be used as loan collateral. So this is a bit more of a traditional play here. An easement is a limited lease generally designed for things like construction of power lines, pipelines, or roads. So this is where you've got several acres and we need to run a, a, a train right through it, a highway right through it, power lines right through it. Sorry to interrupt you there, but I actually used to do negotiations of those types of deals. They were post-expropriation. So I worked in secondary land use for Hydro One, basically. The land had just been expropriated from farmers on on one of the main power lines. And we were it was basically our job to to try and lease it back to the farmers, the dis, often disgruntled farmers to ask them if they wanted to continue to farm <laughs> the land now below the power line. So it was an interesting an interesting role there. And that wasn't even actually a, a crown. I mean, it wasn't. Hydro One is technically a private entity. They're sort of almost a crown corporation in, in the Canadian market, but there is a degree of public ownership there as well. But just an interesting little tidbit of information. Yeah, no, that's 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 fascinating. I mean, I've I've got some friends that work on on power line stuff. They they've done it across Canada. They've they've done it across America and Texas. And the work it's it's tough. It's it's hard work, but it's fascinating because you know these they'll post something on Instagram and it'll just be endless, endless as far as the eye can see. Power lines seemingly in the middle of nowhere, but you know that is. That is what powers our our country here, our vast, vast landscape. Just to finish up that list of the possible approved uses for crown land is the fifth and final is a freehold letters patent, which grants the holder of the patent private ownership and use of the land. So this is the least restrictive form of occupational authority and is subject to conditions like road construction rights, mining, in addition, there can be rights granted by a freehold patent they can be transferred through a sale. So that kind of covers a wide variety. So uh, basically, I guess the queen's open for business, right? Yeah. You know, we've got so much land here. And, you know, I think in one of the previous episodes, we discussed that I can't remember the stat now, and I don't want to paraphrase it, but a ridiculous percentage of Canadians live within a hundred kilometers of the United States border, right? Well, what do we do when we, when we get further North? How do we make use of that land? Is that land 
going to be worth money? And is that land a worthwhile investment for the average Canadian investor? You know, if you're, if you're looking to buy your first, second or third duplex or whatever it is you're trying to buy, have you considered raw or vacant land? Right. Yeah, I, I think the stat you're looking for is like 90% of Canadians live within 100 miles of the US border. That's it. Thank you. Look, like we talk a lot about Canada maybe potentially reaching a 100 million population growing through immigration, through organic population growth, the diversification of the economy. I'm personally quite bullish on rural land. And the big reason that I am is because I think it's inefficiently priced, right? I think that if you if you look at and and the, one of the reasons that it is inefficiently priced is because of the credit factor that we just mentioned, and it's also because of the return factor that we just mentioned. So the rates of return aren't that high, based on what we know. If you're going to try and or what we just discussed, if you're going to try and yield from a farmland perspective, you're not going to get the returns that you would in an urban environment. You also can't get the credit. So naturally, the buying power of the average purchaser of homes or sorry, of of residential or rural land is a lot less than the buying power of people who are purchasing residential homes. So there's naturally stifled demand for rural land. Now, in, in regards to that and going through that list of sort of the the crown land approvals, the different ways that you can do it. You know, land leases aren't uncommon in Canadian real estate. You'll see it a lot in, you know, indigenous populations will do land leases for cottage areas. You'll see it in land leases for different areas along bodies of water, etc. And and a lot of people use these for recreational purposes. A lot of cottage areas are land leases as an example, right? I think it introduces to me what I would call a pretty interesting topic of conversation as an example the lease arbitrage that you're starting to see in the market, which is almost like investing in real estate without actually investing in real estate, right? You don't even actually have to take possession of land. There are a lot of prop tech groups in the in Toronto doing this. I'm actually going to be joining, working on, on a fund that's doing something like this for medium-term rental as an example. But basically what they do is they'll lease a home, piece of land, et cetera, and then they'll sublet that to somebody else. And they're a business that exists in the middle that basically creates or adds some sort of exchange of value or arbitrage. And so you could potentially do the cabinscape idea as an example, like we're talking about on a land use permit or on a land lease or on a freehold letters patent on crown land, rather than going and purchasing a piece of freehold or fee simple ownership, which is the highest level of land tenure in in Canadian real estate. So just, you know, above and beyond all of those sort of things, fee simple is the highest form of ownership. It grants a property owner exclusive rights on a property, which means that they own per se in quotation marks that land and property completely without any limitations or conditions aside from taxation, debt obligations, and zoning or building restrictions. So that's sort of like the little step above. That's the final, the kind of highest form of relationship that you can have with the crown is you would fee simple, again, own in quotation marks, the land that the crown sort of possesses. I think we've honestly covered most of the things that I wanted to discuss in regards to investing land without getting too granular. Like I think, you know, we provided a pretty good high level of analysis of what it's like to invest in land. I think I've kind of outlined why I'm, I'm bullish on it as an individual asset class. I think the only piece beyond that is you know, in rural Canada, I do believe that there is, we are likely going to see some economic growth as the Canadian economy sort of, you know, desperation is the mother of invention, right? I think that we need to diversify the Canadian economy. That's going to become painfully apparent as we go into this next economic downturn, this next major cyclical event. We do have a lot of immigration 
to grow our population and those people are going to come here and they're going to want jobs and a lot of in a lot of cases we're attracting qualified individuals in stem careers etc and they're going to work in places like in the commodity space in the precious metals space so you you know and oil right now is is trading commodity metals are trading battery metals are becoming popular it wouldn't surprise me to see the potential for a lot of these low growth markets such as Saskatchewan rural Alberta, Manitoba, Quebec, etc., actually outperform some of the urban areas over the next little bit as housing becomes less and less of a element of the Canadian economy that we can depend on for long-term sustainable growth. So I'm personally really keeping my eye on rural land opportunities like the ones that we just discussed and the major sort of macro economy of what rural Canada looks like in spite of the fact that, you know, at the beginning we mentioned that something like 84% of the Canadian population is is making an attempt to urbanize. I don't necessarily know if all of the people immigrating to Canada are seeking that urban lifestyle, right? And the reality is that dollars are what drive growth and people will move in search of jobs, right? Totally. Yeah. Well said. I don't have too much to add to that. I, I mean, I totally agree on the, we need to diversify the economy a little bit. I mean, just based off the natural resources, here's a Here's a nice little stat. Canada boasts the highest number of lakes in the world at 2 million lakes. That's and and most of those are fresh water. So, you know, between the fresh water, the forestry, the vast amount of of agricultural land that we have, I'm right there with you. I, I'm bullish on land. I always have been, you know, I always probably not the first guy to say it, I won't be the last one. They're not making any more of it, right? So it's it's a good thing to own. It's a good hedge for whatever you want to do. I think there's a few key takeaways. One, look at the zoning. Two, always explore the vendor take back option when looking to purchase land. And we can go more into that. And if you have any questions about vendor take backs, my partner, Jonathan Gibson, and I just advise a client on on how to execute one perfectly. And he did just this past week. So they do work. And I think my last point is you can do a joint venture with the queen, essentially. <laughs> if you want to lease or or use crown land, there are ways to do that. So although Canadians apparently only own 11% of the country privately, the queen's nice enough to, to let us jump in and, and get in the mix with her. So thanks. God save the queen. And I think that's it for me. The Canadian Real Estate Ambassador is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center, license number 10317, and a partner in GH Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial, and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association, and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.